0: Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We're studying together uh, the, the parables of Jesus, and we come to a parable that he tells in Luke chapter 13. Um, as a pastor, uh, people find out that I'm a pastor. I guess they think I'm a relig- uh, professional religious person. So, so they often ask me these questions. or, or they give me opinions? And one of them that I get like, often is 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 I love Jesus, but I hate Christianity, or I love Jesus and I hate the hate the church. And they they often say things to me like if people would just follow the teachings of Jesus. And what I what I, there's some truth to that, but what I, what I realize is they've never really read or studied the teaching of Jesus. Because if you really study what Jesus has to say, you're going to hate Jesus. And this parable today, some of you are going to wish that you had left after the cute dedication. <laughs> because this is one of those where Jesus is just kind of going to do the unexpected here. Um, what has happened is some tragedy has taken place and they ask Jesus to comment on it and He gives them a parable. So we're going to read this together. Uh, This is Luke chapter 13. I like it when you read the Word of God out loud as a church. So let's read His Word together. There was some present at that very time who told Him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look for three years. Now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, one of my favorite uh, persons or heroes of the of the faith of the past is an 18th century preacher by the name of George Whitfield. And George Whitfield preached both in England and here in the United States. And he preached a message of repentance wherever he went. And people were greatly convicted by his message. Uh, His voice was the most unusual voice that probably has ever been heard. Benjamin Franklin once measured that Whitfield's voice could be heard by 30,000 people without amplification. So the upper class, both in the States... Which were the colonies at that time, and in England, hated George Whitfield, and they they despised him. They despised his message. So there came about a, a time when, at an upper class party, a little one of the sons of the of the host could mimic George Whitfield, and so uh, Whitfield's voice so distinctive. This little boy could perfectly imitate. And so that as a parlor trick, he, he got before the whole party, and he said, unless you repent, you will perish. Well, it ended the party, <laughs> because the Holy Spirit fell in anointing on this little boy's mimic, and nobody could withstand it, and they had this sense of eternity hit them, and they, they left their drinking, and their dancing, and they went home, and some of them found the Lord. You see, when Jesus begins to speak to your heart, He speaks about repentance. Change. And when He does so, it kind of interrupts everything. And even disrupts everything. So, this is what happened in this story. is That He kind of messed up their party. What we have is we have two groups of people. You have a group with Jesus who are coming into Jerusalem. And you have a group coming out of Jerusalem. They recognize that they're all Galileans. Galileans had an accent, kind of like the Bronx. And uh, people could recognize them when they, when they were, were coming and going. And so they interrupt Jesus and they say to Jesus, have you heard the news? Now, this, this helps you to understand that people have always been the same. People have always loved tragedy. Have you ever noticed you'll be on the highway and everything is stalled and there's no accident on your side, but everybody's looking to see if there's blood in the accident on the other side. And they're trying to see how much damage and everything's going on. And you get past the accident and it's clear sailing. People love to watch tragedy. And so this is the case in this story, is the, these Galileans are come out, coming out of the city. They see other Galileans and they say, have you heard the news? Pontius Pilate took some Galileans, some fellow you know, countrymen, he took some of these fellow countrymen, and all they were doing was giving their sacrifice to the Lord, and he chose to kill them and mingle their blood with their sacrifices. And their expectation is that Jesus is going to answer them according to the way they're already feeling and the way that they're already, you know, uh, bending towards this kind of anger. And how can he possibly do this to our people? And so Jesus understands that there's a question underlying what their news is. And the question is this, why has this happened to these people? Basically, it's this question that many of us ask. It's why do bad things happen to good people? And so they're expecting that Jesus is going to give an answer that's going to satisfy them, that's somehow going to make them feel safe again, that's going to make sense out of suffering. And so they even ask this question, did this happen to them because of some sin in their life or some worse sin in their life than the sin that's in my life? And so Jesus really attacks their assumptions and their false beliefs. And he actually goes after their worldview. Jesus says to them, were were the workers, not only were these Galileans, but he says, were the workers more sinful than when a tower fell on them? Basically, he's going after this sort of tendency of people to believe, well, if there really is a God, there would be no suffering in the world. And what Jesus is saying, if there's not a God, do you not understand that all the towers would fall? If there's not a God, there would be no restraint of suffering. He's basically saying, and this is why a lot of times people don't really want to know what Jesus has to say, is because Jesus is saying, why isn't there even more suffering? Why doesn't everything go wrong? Why is suffering in our lives so Restrained. See, as Western people, we have this expectation and even a demand that if there's a deity, there, uh, there has to be this understandable universe in which we are guaranteed comfort and security. There are people who basically are in religion only to make themselves safe. They pray thinking, if I pray enough, God has to keep me safe and my family safe. God has to make my life certain. you know how I sit there and listen to this guy on Sundays who talks forever? So I should be given a pass all week long because of that. The idea somehow is that you can get leverage with God in order to make your universe safe. And what Jesus says instead is He says the only thing that will ever make you safe is to Repent. He explains, in a sense, why isn't a bad thing happening to you every single moment to every single creature? See, we don't really want to ask the question that Jesus is posing to these people on the road to to Jerusalem. He is undercutting the way we want to think about our lives and the way we want to think about the world. He's trying to say to you, and it doesn't matter how religious you are or irreligious you are, He's saying to you that there is no other way to live your life except to realize that you have to be in a position of repentance. Amen. We've been studying a book together on Wednesday nights uh, written by a neuroscientist. And one of the things that she says that's so powerful is she says, every single one of us start our day in a deficit. We start, with, start our day saying we don't have enough of so how many of you, if you're honest, get up out of bed going, I didn't get enough sleep. You hit the floor and you put your feet on the floor and you're saying, I don't have enough time. The demands are too many for this day. I, I, how many of us say, I never have time for myself? We spend most of our lives talking about what is, we feel like should be the demand of a universe for our well-being. And Jesus is saying... That at the very root of the way you think is something you need to repent of. Now, he goes after this because this is how the Bible treats the whole of our universe. See, the, in a way, the Bible hangs together on this point, and the point is this that your natural state and the natural consequences of your life is actually to perish. You are perishing if you don't repent. And if you don't keep repenting, you go back to perishing. That's the natural state of affairs in your life. That's what Jesus is saying. That's that's what He's trying to get across to these people. He's trying to get them to understand the gravity of repentance in order for you not to perish. And many of us love, I love John 3.16. I love the first part. It says, for God so loved the world. That's so happy. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that... Whosoever believes in Him, what does it say next? Should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what is the conclusion there? It is that if you've not repented, if you've not come into a right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, then your natural state is perishing. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And as a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, it says... That if you have not repented and if you have not lived a life of repentance, that when the book of your life is opened up, you're going to look for rocks to fall on you to hide you. You're like, why did I come this morning? Some of you are looking for rocks right now to throw at me. See, in a way, if you don't get this, then grace will never be amazing to you. Grace is only amazing if you recognize your need for it. If you're still thinking my good will outweigh my bad. If you're still thinking somehow that you can look over across the aisle and say at least I'm not like that loser. I mean, one of the ways to look at life in Jesus' viewpoint is this. My wife's family is from Hawaii. Suppose all of a sudden they decided they wanted to swim to California. And, uh, and they said, we're going to swim to California. Well, some of Lisa's family members would swim further than others. But none of them would make it. Either the sharks would get them or they would die trying drowning. What you have to understand is basically religion is trying to swim from Hawaii to California. Some of you can swim farther than others, but you won't make it to California. You'll either be eaten by sharks or you'll, be, you'll drown in your own inability to swim that far. And many people, when they use religion, they think it's helping them swim. It's giving them the power to swim. And you do not have the power to swim to heaven on your own. You have to come to this place where you realize it's either all of grace or you're drowned. Now, one of my professors that wanted to explain the grace aspect of the Bible and the grace aspect of Jesus' teaching asked the question, what is grace? And everybody gave what are the standard answers, like, Many of us take the acronym of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Some of us realize that grace is the unmerited favor of God. Sometimes we contrast it with mercy. Mercy is that, you, you, that what you deserve is restrained and you don't get what you deserve. And grace is you're given what you, you, you haven't merited, what you haven't deserved. And those are all good answers. But this professor said, I want you to think of it in a, in a way that Jesus teaches Anything outside of hell is grace. And that see, that changes the way you get up in the morning. Because the first breath, you realize, great is His faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And, that, and though you may not get everything done on your list, you still have the feet to walk. You still have the, the mind to think through it. You still have the ability to work, and you still have a freedom in your life, and instead of looking at it and saying, Lord, I demand more, you begin to realize anything outside of hell is grace. And then a gratitude starts to come, and a praise starts to come, and you, you're repenting of all your complaining, and you're repenting of all your murmuring, because you're recognizing what Jesus is saying here is that every tower that hasn't fallen on me is Grace. Every governor who hasn't mingled my blood with my sacrifice is grace. You got really quiet then. See, this is the question Jesus is asking. Will you have his viewpoint, or will you stay in a worldly viewpoint? If you stay in a worldly viewpoint, the natural consequence is perishing. There was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus. And the guy was very religious. He was very devoted to his religion. And Jesus asked him, you know, what was the commandments and he knew them right off. He knew to love the Lord as God with all his heart, mind, soul and strength. He knew to love the neighbor his neighbor as, as himself and he actually said to Jesus, I've been doing this since I was a child. What a pompous ass. <laughs> But Jesus knew he was a pompous ass. I'm using King James right now. That makes it alright. King James only. So here, Jesus goes right to the heart of things. He goes right to the heart of the issue. And that is that this young man did not love the Lord as God with all his heart. What he loved with all his heart was his money. Jesus doesn't say to everybody, sell everything you have and go give it to the poor. But he said it to the one who said, I love the Lord my God with all my heart. He said it to him, so he said to him, well then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And immediately the man hung his head, walked away. It grieved Jesus. It grieved him because this man was perishing. And he didn't know how to repent. And he loved his money. You see, anything in your life that you love more than you love God, anything that you say will satisfy you in a way that only God can satisfy you is an idol. And that idol, God will not resource. He will not give success to your idolatry. Now, Jesus tells this parable of the fig tree. And in this parable, the caretaker of the fig tree says, give it one more chance. This, every parable that Jesus tells sort of harkens back to His most wonderful parable of the prodigal son. And it's in the prodigal son that we see Jesus' picture of repentance. And in this, in this repentance of the prodigal, once he has squandered the wealth of his father, And once he finds himself at at his own bankruptcy in the pig pen, he says, I'm not worthy to be my father's son anymore. I'll go back as a servant. And he goes back and and he asks for forgiveness. And what happens instead of rebuke and condemnation, he actually meets the kindness of his father. And it's the kindness of his father that leads him to repentance. And what we see in Jesus' teaching, it is not the harshness of the Father, it's the kindness of the Father's house and the kindness of the Father's heart that leads us to repentance. But that doesn't make repentance easy. Repentance is actually a very hard thing. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, asks this question, is Christianity hard or is it easy? And he says repentance is the hard part. He said it this way, Repentance may, means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we've been training ourselves into. It means killing a part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. But then he also talks about how hard it is if you don't repent. Because the fruit of repentance is sweet. Whereas the fruit of unrepentance is perishing. It's always bitter it may be hard now to repent but its fruit is sweet whereas it might be easy not to repent but the fruit of that is bitter are you tracking with me that's what Jesus is teaching us in this parable so does it take strength or does it take weakness to repent In our modern mindset it actually takes a great deal of strength to repent in my opinion if you think about The way people live their lives, it's according to this proverb or this poem that was written by Henley. He says it this way, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Do you understand how hard it is for such a person to repent? Notice the religious language in here. Who talked about a straight gate? Jesus said that's the only way into heaven. Who talks about a book of life in which all of your deeds and thoughts and words are recorded and which shall be revealed and according to that you will be judged except the Bible itself. And He says, I don't care. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Repentance is hard. Some people say that repentance is so difficult for the modern person. And part, part of that is because we don't even have a concept anymore of repentance or of sin. So, Jesus is trying to get across to you three needs. One is you have this need for repentance. Number two, you need to know how to repent. And then number three, you need to know that in the default setting of your reactions to whatever happens to you, there is a default setting of repentance. And... We'll start with the need for repentance. So Jesus is going over with them these terrible tragedies. The tower fell and it killed a bunch of people, 18 to be exact. And the question that comes to Him is, why them? Were they somehow worse sinners than other people? And underlying that is kind of a, a, a concept that many of us have, that good happens because you do good, and bad happens because you do bad. The idea that there's always these consequences of sin. They're a sort of simple cause and effect. And, and if you think that's just a philosophical idea, it really is something subconsciously that I watch with everybody I've ever met in my life. The first thing that people say when bad things happen, am I being punished? Why does this always happen to me? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong to make this happen? And, and immediately there's this idea that if I've done bad, I get punished. And then... The the amazing thing on the other side is when something good happens, we go. You know, we go. I must be a righteous person. <laughs> I, I actually heard people say, "Oh, you know, it's because I live a good life. It's because I live a pure life because I have a pure heart." I'm like, "Oh, golly, oh my goodness, the the manure is not being used appropriately in this case." You see. What Jesus is going after here, He says whether it's the good that's happening or the bad that's happening, He says, repent. He says, repent lest you likewise perish. See, what He's saying is the right response, whether it's in good times that's in your life or bad times that are in your life, if everything outside of hell is grace, then whether it's good or it's bad, it's the grace of God that is carrying you through so you do not perish. Amen. And what Romans 2.4 says, and I love Romans 2.4 because it says, do you show contempt for the richness of His kindness? His kindness, Paul says, should lead to repentance. Repentance. In other words, Paul is saying all things are designed to lead you to repentance. Repentance is so necessary. Luther said it is all of our life is repentance. Jesus' first message was repent. Jesus' first message that He gave to His disciples to send them out to preach was repent. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2 and the people were saying, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. Do you get it? It's pretty necessary. So what is this repentance? Here's where people get into such trouble is they they think that repentance is a form of self-hatred. It's a form of self-loathing or beating yourself up. Alright, so I want you to take your righteous finger, not your bad finger. Your righteous finger. I want you to poke the person next to you. Okay? And say this to them. Self-loathing... is not repentance. repentance. Beating yourself up up. is not repentance. repentance. I'll do that for you. (laughs) You know this if you're honest. You can know the wrong and still do it. You can know what's right and still not do it. You understand what many of us call repentance is regret. And when you just have regret, you're only upset over things you cannot change. Or you're only upset over the consequences of things where you got caught. Regret is basically a useless emotion. Satan uses regret to keep you stuck. So what Jesus is teaching here is that repentance is the realization of two very genuine realities that can change your life. The first is this, that you as a believer, if you've come into a place where you say, Lord, I'm going to trust you with my life. Then you have to realize what he's saying here. He's assuming something that we do not even recognize. Jesus is, is attacking an assumption that we tend to have, and that is, we tend to say, God, you owe me a good life. You owe me comfort. You owe me security. You owe me certainty. We, we tend to have that assumption. And Jesus comes and He blows that assumption up. He basically says this, and I, again, please, I didn't say it, Jesus said it. He said, every one of us deserves a tower to fall on us. That's what we deserve. That's what it means to be perishing. That you're always in danger of the tower falling. That's what it means. And so what Jesus says is don't ask the question, why does God allow suffering? Ask the real question, why does He allow so little? You see, again, this is why people... It's, you can't just be religious. You have to be a Jesus person. You have to be a Jesus follower. You see... The way the Bible explains all of human history is through this doctrine of sin or concept of sin. And the concept of sin is this, is that human beings are naturally selfish. Now you know that about the person sitting next to you, just realize it about yourself. What does sin really mean? And see, this is one of the issues in our society if we've lost the concept of sin. Do you know what sin basically is taught as now? Is you not living your authentic self. You know what? Self is right there in the midst of that. So it's again, is it a self-centered view of the world? And what Jesus says, if you have a self-centered view of the world, then you too must repent or you will likewise perish. So what does this mean? It means you're out for yourself. It means you're the captain. Now some people will say they're religious or they have God in their life, but they're still the captain. I've often seen that bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. I don't want to be around those people. (laughs) Because I know when the real hardship comes, who the pilot's going to be. If he's the co-pilot you're going to be the pilot. You understand? That is what Jesus calls radical, malignant self-centeredness. You see, any time, and this is, this is the simplicity of sin, any time your Creator is not put in first place in your life, then you are living in sin and you must repent in order not to Perish. It is not what does He owe me, it is what do I owe Him. But here's the second reality. That's the first one. Did I get it across well enough? Tough. That's as much time as I have. So Here's the second reality. The one who you have offended with your captain and master of your own fate, the one you have offended is actually committed to saving you from what you deserve, the fig tree deserves to be cut down. It's just taking space, but the caretaker says, "I'm committed to this fig tree." If you don't know it, the tree is you. The caretaker is Jesus. But here's the thing, friends: what the Bible's saying here is that that the, that our caretaker cares about fruit. Fruit matters. Some of you. I've been Christians for a while and you will understand what I'm saying. There are people who are captivated and and, and obsessed in some ways with the gifts of the Spirit. They are awesome when the gifts are in, in, in operation to see the Spirit give a tongue, to give interpretation, to be where healing is taking place, to be where prophecy is taking place. All of these things are awesome, but rascals can exercise the gifts. But fruit requires repentance. You understand, God is revealing in this church the rottenness and corruption of fruit in a big way. See, there there is someone, even this week, that was revealed who was big on spiritual gifts, who taught on spiritual gifts, who wrote on spiritual gifts but he didn't have the fruit of self-control or there wouldn't be nine women sexually abused and coming forward because their pastor did it to them you understand i love the gifts but it's the fruit that jesus is after and the fruit is love and peace and patience and kindness self-control all gentleness, all of these things, these cannot be produced in an unrepentant tree. And that tree is just taking up space. Now, the caretaker is passionate about saving your tree. Notice, if you go back again to the prodigal and to the father, the prodigal comes... And he wants to be a servant because it's better to be a servant than to be in the pig pen. But what happens is the father doesn't make him a servant. The father says, you're a son. But he had to take from the elder brother the riches and the wealth of the elder brother. You see, the ring he put on the younger brother's son was not the younger brother's ring. It was the older brother's ring, the robe that he put on the younger brother's was the robe of the older brother. And in the story, in the natural way, this older brother said, what are you doing? He doesn't deserve it. How can you give him? And yet what Jesus is teaching in the parable is this, that until your repentance connects to the wealth of your older brother, then, then you're not really home yet. It's when you recognize and realize that everything I have of any value has been given to me by my older brother Jesus. Whose ring is it? It's Jesus' ring. Whose seal is it on you? It's His Spirit on you. That's the ring that is, that is the deposit of all that is to come, but it's also the guarantee of what's yours and of your identity. His Spirit has, has now ringed around your life in such a way that you are His and He is yours. And instead of the smell of the stain of sin and the world in your life, He's given you His robe of righteousness. You see, but until you realize it's not your robe, it's not your ring, you spent your wealth. And it's when you repent and you say, I'm not worthy, but then He makes you not a servant, but a son. Repentance is not complete when you just say, I'm not worthy. It's only complete when you say, I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I have a ring. I have a robe. He threw a party. Think about it. What had to be sacrificed for a party to be thrown in heaven for you coming home? It was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's only when you realize both I'm unworthy and yet I am cherished. Yeah, This is so important that you get this. I see it so, so many times. Religious people will get that they're not worthy. But only when you've really repented do you also say, but the ring is on my hand. And the robe is on my body. And the party has been thrown. So the default setting becomes repentance. It's a realization that everything that's going on in your life is sheer grace. Here's the test. When good things happen to you, you go, well, it's about time. Or when good things happen to you, does it build up capital for the future hard times? Do you have something in the bank of reliance on the grace of God so that when suffering does happen? you see? Paul, as he repented, he became more powerful. He said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances, whether in want or in abundance, but I've learned he had something in the bank of reliance, he became more powerful. In this parable, Jesus says, He's given you another year. And some people I've seen people, they say, Well, I'll wait till I'm older. I'll wait till I'm on my deathbed and then I'll sneak in. You know what happens? And why Jesus gives you this year is so that you won't harden your heart. You can't wait. Your conscience can get so seared, your hardness can become so hard that you're not able to hear the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. Remember what the parable says, the tree should have been cut down years ago. I love this though. It means then, no matter how bad your record is, if you repent now, fruit will come. He says it this way in the scriptures, the one who comes to Jesus will in no wise be cast out. An old theology book that I love says, no sin so small that it will, not, that it will escape judgment, but no sin so great that it cannot be repented of and escape judgment. Will you stand with me? as you stand in the presence of God in this company, because Jesus said if two or more of us are gathered in His name, here He is in the midst of us. He's asking you in the same way He asked that rich, young, really saying, what's your true treasure? Many of us, we try to hide or avoid or restrain the really shameful sins in our life. We try to, you know, make sure that we're we're good more than we're bad. But if you're listening to Jesus, none of that has any value. The only thing that has value is to realize, I have no worth, but I can call upon the worth and the wealth of my older brother. Jesus said it this way, apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet Paul discovered as he aligned his life with Jesus' life, he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Aren't you tired of perishing? Tired of, in a sense, like praying in ways that don't get above the ceiling? It's not because he's not listening. It's it's really because you haven't made Him your treasure. See, when what you pray about is your treasure, then He can't resource that idolatry. When even you've made good things, ultimate things, He has to oppose even the good things in your life. I'm asking you to do what Followers of Jesus have done since the beginning. They've they've realized, I need to live a life of repentance. Where He he leads me, I will follow. What He shows me, I'm not going to reject. The people He brings into my life who are good or bad, I'm going to learn. I'm going to get up in the morning and say, great is Your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And if it takes a while to do that, we've said repentance is hard. It's a dying to self. Now, I want you to know something. Repentance has no merit in it. It's not a work. It's a realization. I'm not worthy, but I'm a chosen son. I'm not worthy, but I'm a chosen daughter. You didn't get there by working. He did all the work. You do all the receiving. Would you say this with me if if you're tracking with me today would you say these words dear Lord Jesus Jesus, I receive receive a a spirit of repentance the Lord loves repentance friends he loves it he took every moment he could to teach it because he's describing how you go back to God And going back to God is going home. If you haven't come home, come home today. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Share the love around with each other. God bless you. We'll see you next week.